As I said, today we will be looking at uh, the book of Colossians, chapter 3. But before we get into our text this morning, uh, some background information. Since we are uh, diving into this epistle, we have not covered chapters 1 and 2. Uh, I will provide you some background uh, before, we, before we delve into the text. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter to Christians living in a small city in Colossae. It was probably written around A.D. 62, while Paul was in prison in Rome. This was about the same time he wrote Ephesians and Philemon. All three letters were sent by Tychicus and Onesimus. And a dangerous teaching was threatening the church at Colossae, one that lessened Christ's role and undermined the new identity of believers in Christ. Paul wrote to warn against this false teaching and to encourage the believers in their growth toward Christian maturity. He emphasizes Christ's authority over all evil powers. Christians are united with the risen Christ, and therefore they share in his power and authority. And Paul also encourages these believers to fight against sin, pursue holiness, and live as distinctly Christian households. So if you will, uh, for sake of context, we will begin in chapter 2, beginning in verse 20, and we'll read down to verse 11 in chapter 3. Here now, God's word. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated. Excuse me, where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Let's pray. A great God in heaven, as we look at this text this morning, we recognize the loftiness of what is here. We recognize the high theology that we find in this text, O oh Father, and just pray this morning that your children would hear your voice. Father, that those who may be in our midst who are in a backslidden state would hear your voice, O oh Father, in return to doing what you have called them to do and to live lives as you have called them to do. And Father, for those who may not know you this morning, we pray, Father, that you draw them to yourself. 
Father, that you would truly, through your word this morning, send forth thy spirit with your word and change their hearts, O Father. Draw the children to yourself. Let the children for the first time come and to seek and to see that Christ is good. Father, would your name be magnified in this place. May your people be built up, strengthened, and encouraged. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Self-improvement market data estimates that the self-improvement market in the U.S. was worth $11 billion in 2018 versus $9.38 billion in 2016. The market grew about 18% in two years. Fueled by growth in personal coaching services, self-help books and audiobooks, and weight loss programs. We expect, market, we expect the market to grow five additional percent in 2019 to $11.6 billion and 4.8% year on average between 2019 and 2023, when the market should be worth $13.9 billion. Personal coaching services are growing strongly in this market. The latest global study found that U.S. personal coaching market was worth $1.2 billion in 2016, and market data estimates this to have grown to $1.43 billion in 2018. Motivational speakers as well are capitalizing upon the self-improvement programs. Nearly 5,000 plus U.S. public speakers take in more than one billion per year with the elite top nine generating around $188 million. Many older speakers are dying, retiring, or cutting back their road tours and younger and more energized and, and uh, uh, people that have learned from them are kind of taking the reins from them, as it were. The bottom, of, bottom line up front is this. In recent years, the self-improvement industry has increased at an unprecedented pace. People are investing in personal development with the aim to improve the quality of their lives more than ever before. To improve their self-worth, to improve their character, while self-help self -help books remain one of the most prominent self-help products, this industry has a much broader reach. In fact, it has developed many different programs, technology, and media, striving to satisfy the consumer's needs. Self-improvement industry statistics have shown that the majority of consumers are millennials who are willing to become the very best versions of themselves. And sadly, some, some pastors have taken this and run with it, haven't they? They have told the uh, young Christian that if you do this, if you do X, Y, Z, if you follow these uh, list of rules, you too can have great success. You too can be a millionaire, so on and so forth. And all of these different philosophies that are, that are being taught even within the church. Your marriage is broken. Just come to Christ and Christ will fix it. Your finances are in shambles. Just come to Christ and Christ will make sure your finances are okay. Your children are not being as obedient as you would like to be them to be. Just come to Christ and follow Christ, and your children will improve. And so they teach this kind of self-help program to follow Christ, and everything else will take care of itself. Ultimately, to get them what they really desire here on earth, to what they're actually pursuing, to what their heart is leading them to pursue and to chase after, to chase after that which what they are seeking 
And this is a dangerous snare of Satan. And it was true in Paul's day as well. And you notice the book of Colossians is not a top seller uh, on the New York Times. You, 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 can, you cannot go to any bookstore and find chapter 3 of Colossians and commentaries on that being a bestseller in the bookstores. Because Paul is not promoting that stuff. He is not promoting here some type of self-improvement program by seeking the things that are above and setting your minds on the things that are above. And all these other things will kind of take care of themselves. Paul is not promoting here how you can become more passionate, more friendly and generous, more empathetic and creative, more persuasive and responsible, more thankful and appreciative, more courageous and self-aware, successful or a better leader. The epistle to the believers in Colossae was not written with a primary purpose of self-improvement. The epistle was written magnifying the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And the, and the redemption that God has accomplished in them. Found throughout is the story of God becoming man, turning the hearts of men back to himself, creating new creatures to produce not a better man, but a totally different man, a new man, a man whose heart has been changed, a man whose heart has been regenerated, and there is no longer the old man. There is actually a new man in place. Paul says in the, in the second letter of Corinthians, therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And Paul presents here in our chapter that believers have been made new in Jesus Christ. That humanity has been redeemed from the old life of misery and slavery to sin. And now freedom in Christ. That sin no longer is their master. And that seeking only that which is above should be the primary focus of the Christian church. Sadly, many Christians, both young and mature in the faith, have fallen into the trap and snare of self-help programs. How to be a better husband. How to be a better father, mother, wife. How to be a better leader at work. How to be a more productive person. And the list goes on and on. In part, I believe it's because Christians have lost their identity. They have lost their identity. They have failed to realize that you are a new creature when you are in Christ. There has been this identity crisis in the church that the Christians of Colossae were also experiencing, thinking that if they put off all of these other things and add something to Christianity, that somehow they will live more holy lives. They will live more productive lives. They have forgotten who they really are in Christ Jesus. So Paul is seeking to reorient them this morning. He's seeking to calibrate them back to what is true. And this morning, my goal in choosing this sermon is to reorient ourselves to what's most important. To what holds value, not only in this life, but in the life to come. To show us afresh who we really are in Christ in the life that he calls us to. This morning, it is my great aim to show you from the scriptures that believers in Christ have been raised in newness of life in Christ, that believers have died to the old man and died to sin, that sin is no longer your master, and that there is victory and freedom in Christ Jesus. 
And lastly, my great aim is to point you to Christ and the glories of heaven when Christ returns. This will and should serve as the motivation of turning your eyes to Christ and realizing that you are a child of God. A child of God that has been risen from the dead, given the ability to walk as Paul instructs the Christians in Colossae and us this morning to do. So our first point today is risen with Christ, and we will find that in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3 in the book of Colossians. Notice again in our text, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. So Paul begins this chapter with an indicative statement, doesn't he? He says, if then you have been raised. And I consider this to be a somewhat poor translation. It's a therefore or a since you have been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above. And with this statement, Paul grounds all that he is going to command in the following verses with Christ's resurrection. With Christ's resurrection. He links Christ's resurrection with the idea that they too have been raised. In doing this, Paul calls them not only to believe once again in the resurrection, but he points them to the fact that they too have been raised with Christ. It begs the question then, when exactly were these Christians raised? When exactly did they go to the grave and rise with Christ? We know that none of them have died, physically speaking, and been raised So what is the connection that Paul is making here? Notice in chapter 2, verse 12, what does Paul say there? He says that having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. This is the most glorious reality, isn't it? This is high doctrine. This is foundational doctrine, foundational truth. It is saving doctrine. Paul is pointing to their baptism in chapter 2 as a symbol, a picture of them dying with Christ and therefore being raised with Christ. Not only having been raised, you see, but the emphasis is with Christ. You are in union with Jesus Christ, he is telling them, who is the head of the church. So since, therefore, you have been raised with Christ, Seek the things that are above. Seek the things that are above. We will get into what the seeking is here in a little bit, but notice the with Christ, the emphasis of it being with Christ and their union with Christ in verse 1. As well as you look down in verse 3 and 4, it says, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Simply put, the Christian life is never solo, is it? The Christian life is not some independent journey that we are on or the Christians were on in Colossae. The Christian life is with Christ. It's with Christ primarily and supremely above all else. It is with Christ. Not only is this emphasized in our study this morning, but all throughout sacred scripture. Now, this doesn't mean just give me Jesus and nothing else. I take my Jesus and I don't need the church. It's just me and Jesus walking along and we're on our journey. That's not what Paul is saying here. That's not what I am saying here. 
What I'm saying is that we are in union with Jesus Christ. And therefore, our Christian lives can never be separate from the fact that we are in union with Jesus Christ, who is risen from the dead. We walk with him. You recall places in Scripture like Galatians 2, verse 20, and Ephesians 2, and 5, and 6. What does Paul say there in Galatians 2, 20? He says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. In Ephesians 2, 5, and 6, what does Paul say? Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And Paul now gets to what I believe to be some of his hardest work. Not theologically speaking, because no one can look at the book of Colossians and say that what Paul is saying here is more difficult than what Paul has laid out in chapter 1. Speaking of the very deity of Jesus Christ himself. But all of you know it is much easier to tear something down than to build something up. It is, more, it is much easier than to take an existing argument and seek to uh, deconstruct what is being said than to make a total and new argument. It's a lot easier to point out the failings of our co-workers than it is to coach them up and to build them up. It's much easier to point to the flaws of a spouse than to point out their strengths. And so it's much easier to point to the flaws of the Christian church than it is to see the beauty of the Christian church, than it is to look at the church itself as being the church of the living God, raised with Jesus Christ, seated in the heavenly places, and to build them up than it is to tear them down. And don't get me wrong, there is a place for criticism. There is. It's not that criticism in and of itself is sinful or, or wrong. It certainly has its value. It's just that it's easier to critique than it is to offer positive solutions. And I would have you to know that the gist of my sermon today will not focus on the negative. It will not focus on how awful we have failed, what Paul commands in this text. I will not use this pulpit as a launching pad, as it were, to point to specific inconsistencies or sins in this church. However, brethren, what I will do today is point your eyes back to Jesus Christ, who you are in union with, I will, from our text, show you the command, but also the Savior behind the command. So what, are, what is the command? What, does Paul, what is Paul telling them to do? He has laid out in chapters 1, uh, time and time again, what Christ has done in them, what he's accomplished in them, and now he gets to the imperative. He gets to the actual command. And Paul, under our first point, issues two commands, as I stated. The first one is to seek the things that are above. Secondly, to set your minds on things that are above. Both the setting of the mind and seeking the things that are above go hand in hand with what Paul desires to accomplish in giving these commands to the Colossian church. These commands are what is going to reorient the believers back to who they really are, the people of God. It's going to show them again who they are in Christ, that they are with Christ. Quite frankly, that they have the ability to do what he is calling them to do. They have the actual ability to do what Paul is commanding them to do. What you should first notice about these commands is that they are plural, present tense, and active voice. 
Now, for the English majors and parents, you will uh, appreciate what I have just stated because maybe some of this was in your homeschooling this week. However, what do I mean by it is plural, present tense, imperatives? Plural meaning this is not an individual command to individual Christians. These are commands given to a community of believers. Yes, to individual Christians, but in the context of the local church. These commands were given to the church of God. Seeking and setting our minds on things that are above is the ongoing responsibility of the entire church. This is what makes this command plural. It is also in the present tense. Paul's not worried about how they set their minds on things in the past or how they sought after God in the past. He's not concerned with those things. He's not even concerned about what they will do in the future, how they will seek God in the future, how they will set their minds upon God in the future. No, he's talking about right now, in the present. Set your minds on things that are above. Seek the things that are above. Before we go into this command further, let us consider what Paul is not saying. Paul is not saying that we should be so heavenly minded, as others of you have heard this, that we are of no earthly good. To be so heavenly minded that we are of no earthly good. He's not saying that we should neglect the responsibilities of being a husband, of being a wife, of being a father, being a nurse, being a teacher. Earning a salary, taking care of our family, so on and so forth. But what does Paul mean here? What does he mean by saying things on earth? Things on earth connotes in the immediate and broader context of our chapter, of our verses, the life in bondage to the cosmic powers in chapters 1 and 2, the sphere of the flesh in chapter 2, and the practices of the old humanity in chapters 3 and 4, of the old man, the life to which they have been delivered from. God has delivered them from this domain of darkness and transferred them to the kingdom of his beloved son. And Paul is seeking to correct one era of teaching that has been prominent throughout, throughout this region, throughout this church specifically. And that error, that error is this, that the Christians in Colossae have been under some form of uh, ascetic practices, ascetic teachings, teachings that if you, if you um, essentially deny yourself in this way, it will lead to a greater holiness. If you cut off these certain things, it will lead to greater holiness. And, and people still make the same mistake today, don't they? They, they demonize things like television or, or the radio or, or, or certain foods or, or certain places to go. And some places would be inherently evil, and we know we should stay away from those. However, Paul says they are of no value in stopping the indulgences of the flesh. They are of no value. They have no value in living a holy life. They have no value in what I'm commanding you to do here. They have no value. And Paul says in uh, verses 16 down to 23 in Colossians 2, in verse 16, he says, Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. Verse 18, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, etc., etc. The major issue Paul is correcting is where is true spiritual freedom found? 
Is it found in those things? Is it found in those practices? Is it found in denying yourself to such a degree that you actually harm your body? You see, Paul would not tolerate this teaching, and he is strictly opposed to it. He does exhort them to live a holy life. He does exhort them to seek the things that are above. He does exhort them to put off the old man and to put on the new. To live as creatures who have been transformed by the power of God, truly redeemed from the bondage of sin. But he points them to the source of the strength, doesn't he? And what is the source? That they have been raised with Christ. They have been raised with Christ. He tells them to seek. He uses this verb, seek the things that are above. And the idea of seeking God is found all throughout Scripture. Isaiah 55, 6 says this, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord. And he will have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon Amos 5.4 says this, For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live. Seek me and live. So the idea of seeking should not be new to anyone here as well that's a Christian. This idea was not foreign either to the church of Colossae. They would have read passages such as Isaiah and Amos 5. It has been the fundamental truth of the prophets of old, of the apostles, and of Jesus Christ himself. That if you are to be saved, if you are to be washed, if you are to be regenerate, if you are to ultimately make it to heaven, you must seek me, and you will be saved. No one will make it to heaven without seeking God himself, finding salvation in his son. And he also says, set your minds on things that are above. The second command, set your minds on things that are above. Paul issues here the second command to set our minds on things that are above. This is, this is the idea of setting the affections, of setting the will, of setting the whole heart upon seeking that which is above. What is above? What, what, what is Paul talking about? Seek the things that are above. Set your mind on things that are above. Well, a few of them, and this is definitely not an exhaustive list, God himself is above. In his triune nature, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Faith, hope, and love are above. God's eternal word and the people of God. These are the things that Paul wants them to reorient themselves and to seek that which is above and to set their minds on that which is above. And in setting our minds on things above, we will begin to rejoice more and more in God and his glory, his grace, and his beauty. We will begin to rejoice more in repentant sinners when they come to faith in Jesus Christ. The saints, faithfulness in Christ's likeness and the beauty of God's creation. We will rejoice in the ultimate triumph of God's kingdom. It's hard to look at our world sometimes and to truly rejoice, isn't it? But when we set our minds on things above and we set our minds on Christ's kingdom and that he still is on his throne and that there will come a day of reckoning there will come a day of judgment. These are the things we should be setting our minds upon. These are the things that we should be seeking. This is just 
one or two ways we should be setting our minds on things that are above. And a final implication from our text is this, from verses 1 and 2. It's already been stated, but I'll say it again. Believers are risen with Christ and exhorted to fix their minds on things above. The exhortation is simple. It's simple. Live as though you are a free man, risen with Christ. Live as though sin no longer has dominion over you. Live as though your citizenship is in heaven. Live as though you have been raised to newness of life. Live as though what Paul has said in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, that all things have become new, that I am a new man, that I am a new creature in Christ Jesus. And I have been risen with Christ, and I have been seated with him in the heavenly places. So secondly, this morning, we will consider the fact that Christians are hidden in Christ. Our first point was risen with Christ. We, we are also hidden in Christ. Look again at verse 3. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And two things stand out in this verse. One, that we have died. And two, that our lives are hidden with Christ. That we have died, and that our life is hidden with Christ. What does it mean to be hidden with Christ? Are we playing hide and seek? <laughs> no, it's not what Paul is saying here. And in order to answer this, we must think more broadly about the Bible itself in terms of hiding and the prominent language of hiding in the Bible. And it reminds me of the fall of Adam and Eve when they had sinned in the garden and God comes looking for them as though he didn't know where they were. And they were hiding. They were hiding because they were ashamed of their sins. They were hiding because they had disobeyed the commandments of God, eating of the forbidden fruit. And so they foolishly clothed themselves and tried to hide from God. And what a sad and tragic reaction to the same voice, that they would hide from the same voice that not only called them into existence, but called them into his sweet communion, into his sweet fellowship. Now instead of running to God's voice, full of joy and happy to be in the presence of God, they are now hiding from him. So they run from him and attempt to hide. Their plan of self-protection failed, but God in his grace gives them a covering for their sin. He gives them a covering for their sin. And this is the reality of all men and women born after Adam and Eve. They are now born into sin and so Men and women, boys and girls, they hide from God. They want nothing to do with God. They keep God at a distance because they see the holiness of God. They see that they don't have fellowship in the communion that Adam and Eve once enjoyed. And so the thought of God just makes them want to hide and to run away from God. Paul says you are hidden with Christ in God. And this is the idea of sweet fellowship, sweet communion. And Paul is telling them, you are hidden with Christ in God. What also does this mean? Well, to the naked eye, to the watching world, to the people who were teaching the false things to the Colossian church, they could not see these people as they really are. And so the people were casting judgment on them. They could not see them as they really were in Christ Jesus. They only saw a portion of their lives. Because their lives were hidden with Christ. They were not all that they appeared to be. 
Paul not only deals with their lives being hidden in Christ, but he states that they have died. In order to appreciate this point, we have to look at the broader context, once again, of biblical truth. Once again, pointing back to the fall of man, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they died. Spiritually speaking, they died. They were cast out. They no longer had and enjoyed the fellowship that they once enjoyed. They were no longer capable of being obedient from the heart to what God was calling them to be obedient to. They were now enslaved to sin. They were now slaves to Satan and to his kingdom. What this means is that religion in and of itself is of no use to us. Religion in and of itself will save no one. What do I mean by this? I mean we cannot change our sinful state on our own. No number of spiritual disciplines, no amount of holy water, no list of deeds, no pattern of life can change our sinful nature. No rehab, 12-step programs can do what only God can do in an individual's heart. They will not suffice. They are insufficient. We cannot be improved gradually over time to where our heart grows better and better if we just get around good people and have good morals and practice good morality. These things in and of themselves are not sufficient. You see, what really has to happen is that person has to die. That person has to die. And in dying, a completely new life has begun. A completely new way of thinking a completely new list of new desires in the heart, truly desiring to do what God has called us to do, truly desiring to seek that which is above. You know, rehab programs, sadly, they don't get this right. Many of them don't get this right, do they? They have all these programs where they take you kind of out of your community, take you away from that which is enticing you, take you away from that which is tempting you, and it seems as though the people get better because they no longer... Are, are, are able to access that which they desire. And so 12 weeks go by, two, three, four months goes by, and they release them back into society. And they quickly realize that this person is not truly changed. This person is not truly transformed. Now, I'm not saying that no rehab can be successful. There are times when men and women will attend a rehab program, and they will ultimately put off what they used to be addicted to. And sometimes there can be some real help there, but a lot of times it's just shallow. They're addressing the bad fruit of the situation as opposed to putting the axe to the root, as it were. The individual, if there's going to be a true change of heart, there's going to be new desires formed within that person. That person must die. That person must die. So Paul is warning them, do not listen to the false teachers. Do not listen and obey the ascetic practices. They are only washing the outside of the cup. He tells them, you have died. You have dominion. You have victory over your sin. You have the ability to say no to that which is enticing you. You have been cleansed by God himself. You have been giving a new heart. You may be here this morning as a Christian and say, well, that sounds good, dear preacher. But that's not the Christian life that I know. 
That's not the Christian life that I experience. The Christian life that I know is one of constant struggle against sin. It's one where the same besetting sin continues to ail my life. And for the umpteenth time, I have fallen into this same sin, fallen into the same pattern of thinking, fallen into this same corruption. I have sinned again, and you hate it. You have no desire to keep on sinning, and yet you sin. You may say to yourself, I don't have victory. I don't possess the dominion that you speak of. Have I really died? Have I really died to the old man? Have I really died to sin? It seems as though there is no victory. There is no way of escape. It seems as though Paul was only writing to the mature saints, to the giants of the faith, to those we find in places like Hebrews chapter 11. Paul is only mentioning those Christians. Oh, make no mistake about it. If you are a Christian here today, Paul wrote this about you as well. He wrote this about you as well. In this thinking, we must not fall into the trap of moral perfectionism. You see, because Paul is not dealing with their justification. He's not dealing. He's dealt with that in chapters one and two. These are a justified people. No longer to come into the courtroom of God and to be judged by him for their sin. As I mentioned earlier, Scripture tells us that we are new creations in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 But we often feel as if we are still old creations in Adam who are enslaved to sin. But if we have faith and we have been baptized into the death of Christ and we have died to our sin, it is a matter of fact. It is not up for debate. So in your struggle against sin, look to the waters of baptism as proof that you have died to sin and have been raised with Christ such that you need not give into temptation. Look to Christ afresh today, believer, and have faith that you have died, that you have been risen with Christ, and that you can live as you are called to in these verses because God has given you the power to do so in giving you his Holy Spirit and taking away that heart of stone and replacing it with a heart of flesh and causing you to die to the old man, to be alive, in Christ, to have the power to walk in holiness of life and to seek him continually day after day until you are ushered into glory. Our last point of consideration this morning is our appearance with Christ. Remember point one, we are risen with Christ. Secondly, we are hidden in Christ. And thirdly, we will appear with Christ. Notice again in verse four, chapter three, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The first thing to notice here is that Paul says that Christ is our life. He is our life. In his letter to the Philippian church, he said, For to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. In his letter to the Galatian church, he said, I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I that live, but Christ living in me. That life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And now he suggests that what is true for him is true for every Christian, that Christ is their life. You see, union with Christ has implications for our future destiny as believers. Paul tells them this to their great encouragement. Paul, in verse 4, looks ahead to the glorious appearing 
of Jesus Christ's second return as the substance of our blessed hope. The word appears implies not only that Jesus will be visible, but also that his essential glory will be revealed. And not only will he appear, you will appear with him also. You know, although we love our Savior and we are in him, we have never seen him as he is. But the day is coming when Christ, who is our life, will be revealed. And we shall see him truly as he is. And we shall know him as he is. On that glorious day, all those that are in Christ shall be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. The dead in Christ shall rise first, and then those who are still alive and remain on earth shall be caught up together with all the church into the clouds to meet the Lord Jesus in the air. And so we shall ever be with the Lord. We shall ever be with the Lord. And on that wonderful day, Christ, who is our life, will be revealed. And then we also will be revealed with him in glory. To the non-believer this morning, maybe you're visiting, maybe you are someone who is seeking after God. For those of you who may not know Jesus Christ this morning as personal Savior, if you have not been raised with Christ and died to sin, if you don't have the hope of what I've been speaking about, if you don't have the hope of being with Jesus, seeing him as he is, if you haven't heard anything else I've said today, listen to this and believe it with all your heart. Because here's the beauty of the gospel. The great promise to those who seek the Lord is this, that when you seek him, he will be found. He will be found. What are the promises of Scripture? First Chronicles 28 and 9, If you seek him, he will be found by you. Jeremiah 29, 13, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Proverbs 8, 17, I love those who love me, and those who seek me find me. And of course, the classic passage, Matthew 7, 7, And it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. And when he is found, there is great reward. There is great reward. Hebrews eleven six 6 says this, Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. God himself is our greatest reward. And when we have him, we have everything. We have everything. So stop seeking what the world would offer and seek God, his kingdom, and all. That is above. For the believer, the final exhortation to you is this. This command that Paul gives is easy. It's easy. This imperative to seek the things that are above and to set your minds on things that are above are not burdensome. We should delight in this command. This command draws us ever closer to our Savior. And the reason it is not burdensome, the reason it is not troublesome to us, the reason we do have the ability to do that which Paul calls us to do is because God himself has given us that ability. He has given us his word. He has given us his spirit. He has given us his revelation. He has given us his truth. And therefore, we can be obedient to what Paul is calling us to be obedient to this morning. And brethren, I would leave you with a final implication, a final motivation, as it were, that we are loved beyond measure and without comprehension by God. Mm 
You see, who did the seeking first? It was Christ himself, wasn't it? You see, Luke 19.10 tells us this, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus came and sought us, didn't he? And he found us broken, chained to our former master, enslaved to sin, dead. Completely dead with the inability to seek him at all. Our wills were held captive to Satan. Our minds were held captive to Satan. Our emotions were held captive. But now we live in a day of freedom, a day of power, a day of reconciliation, and a day of redemption. We live as new men and women in Christ. That which has been lost has now been restored. Therefore, since you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above and live. Set your whole hearts and affections upon following Jesus and that which is above, knowing, knowing this, that your life is hidden with Christ and God, knowing that you are a child of God, knowing that one day you will be with Jesus for all of eternity and see him as he really is. Oh, what a glorious day that will be. Let us pray. Amen. A great God, we can't do justice to what we find here in Colossians 3. Words cannot do justice to the Savior that you really are. We thank you so much for your goodness to us and your grace. Help us to live as new children, as the new creatures that you have created us to be. Help us to live out our callings, O Father. Help us to be the light and salt of the world that you have called us to be. And help us not to do this in our own strength, in our own practices, in our own schemes, but to do them according to your scriptures, to do them with your power. Father, we pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.